Hello, and welcome to Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking, the podcast about everything related to your work, your rights and responsibilities in the workplace, whether you are a minimum wage worker, a blue or white collar employee, or an executive. If you work for a living, this podcast is for you. It contains important information that your perspective, current, or former employer does not want you to know, including the basics of your rights and obligations in the workplace, as well as practical tips on how to level the playing field regarding issues that arise every day on the job. Each future episode will feature an expert on the workplace or a guest who may tell us about his or her particular occupation. Today's episode, number 16, is called Resolving Your Dispute Outside the Courtroom, Mediation and Arbitration. Our special guest today is Bill Hawkins. Today, we are going to digress a little and not talk about specific legal rights and responsibilities in the workplace. You may remember that episode six featured Julie Balke, a recognized job coach, and episode 12 featured John Kiefer, a workplace guru skilled in helping people advance in their careers. And like those episodes that did not deal directly with your rights and responsibilities, we are going to focus today on what is known as alternative dispute resolution, whereby a third-party professional, rather than a judge or jury, helps to resolve your workplace issues. Usually this occurs through a process called mediation, but sometimes parties go through a process called arbitration. Bill Hawkins, welcome to Freaking Out About Work. Good to be with you, Randy. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, Bill Hawkins is a partner with Baker and Hostetler, one of the nation's largest law firms, and we are fortunate that he works in the firm's Cincinnati office. I have known Bill since I was a young lawyer in the 1980s. And Bill was already an experienced trial lawyer in complex commercial, construction, and employment litigation. I was fortunate to work on a few cases under his tutelage, and I learned a great deal from Bill about how to win a trial. But, most of all, Bill is someone I admired for his ability to relate to people from all walks of life, and so he was a natural to become a mediator as the field of mediation came into vogue in the 21st century as the preferred way to solve complex problems between businesses, between individuals, and between individuals and businesses. Mediation and arbitration require a unique ability to analyze a situation and the participants, and Bill works as an arbitrator and mediator to resolve disputes outside of the courtroom. Bill is recognized as one of the best lawyers in America, and he is the top-rated alternative dispute resolution attorney in Cincinnati. When he is not solving other people's problems in mediation or in arbitration, Bill represents clients of Baker and Hostetler in business litigation. So enough of that about Bill Hawkins. Let's get started. Let's learn some things from one of the best mediators in the country. So, Bill, I want to start, and I often like to start these episodes 
something I enjoy is hearing about how people ended up in a successful career like you have. So let's start with your upbringing and education. Give us a little bit about that and tell us, did you grow up thinking that you'd be a lawyer and a mediator? Well, I grew up thinking I was going to be a school teacher, uh, <laughs> which, was, which was my goal uh, and was my first uh, pro professional job when I graduated from college to the University of Cincinnati. Uh, I taught in the Cincinnati Public Schools, uh, social studies teacher, uh, coached basketball there as well. Uh, but I'd always had an eye on, on law and law school. Uh, didn't have an opportunity to go directly because uh, I was drafted uh, right out of college and spent some time in the uh, reserves. Uh, but when I came back, there was an opportunity to go to law school at night uh, at uh, Chase Law School, uh, now affiliated with Northern Kentucky University. And so I was able to teach during the day and then uh, study at night. And uh, ultimately, I left teaching uh, and uh, became a full-time lawyer in late 1977. Well, you taught me a few things in the 1980s, I believe. Uh, well, tell our listeners a little bit about what your current occupation is. Now, as you mentioned, Randy, I work for Baker and Hostetler. Uh, primarily, uh, I do uh, mediation and arbitration. That is 95% of what I do. Uh, I do represent some clients, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, those are uh, challenging, but they also help keep your skills sharp because uh, it helps you remember what it's like to be on the other side uh, <laughs> of, of the table. Uh, and uh, I think it helps uh, uh, allow you to be empathetic uh, and, and listen more carefully, which I think you know and I, I know you believe is the key to any good relationship mm -hmm. is being able to understand the other person's position and, and try to put yourself there to the extent you can in order to best help them get a result that makes sense for them. Okay, so Bill, what is mediation and how does the process work? Mediation is a voluntary process uh, in which a third party neutral, someone who doesn't have a relationship with either of the parties nor with the court, uh, tries to help the parties reach an agreement that is satisfactory. Uh, it is a facilitative process. We facilitate discussion. We facilitate, hopefully, a resolution, uh, sometimes with uh, the court's direction. Uh, sometimes, as you know, the court will direct people to mediation. But the vast majority are voluntary, where people decide that they want to either uh, enter into a mediation before litigation, to avoid the cost and the expense, mm -hmm. uh, or uh, they do it early in the process uh, when it uh, seems to make sense to try to reach a business resolution uh, in a confidential setting. And I think the key, Randy, is two things with mediation. Uh, it is voluntary and it is confidential. And in many cases, the confidentiality is important because once you're in the courtroom, uh, all of that information can become public Absolutely. And, and oftentimes, that's not something that people are uh, interested in or desirous of. Nowadays, even filing a lawsuit in federal court, it's out on the web. Almost instantaneously. So one of the benefits that, that, that I think mediation uh, provides is the opportunity to control the process. And, and that's, that's something that uh, perhaps uh, people listening on the podcast may not appreciate. 
the process is facilitated by the mediator, but it's controlled by the parties and their lawyer. Hmm. Uh, there is a exchange of information. Uh, it is all confidential, as I mentioned. Uh, and then the process is uh, interactive. And uh, the mediator serves as a go-between for the parties. But uh, any result, any resolution uh, has to be agreed to by both parties. It's not one that the mediator can order or direct. Uh, a good mediator will help uh, facilitate that mm-hmm. and provide guidance. But it's still the party's choice. And I think that's a, a very positive factor when you're talking to a client. Uh, in your case, Randy, uh, turning a case over to a judge or a jury uh, is a scary proposition for most people because you lose control of the process, mm-hmm. even even with a skilled lawyer uh, from, mm-hmm. from your form, firm or others. Uh, you don't control what the judge does. You don't control what the jury does. And you, you really don't have uh, any uh, influence on the outcome other than whatever you're able to present to the, to the court. In the mediation, uh, if you're not satisfied with the result, if you're not satisfied with where the result's going, there is no obligation to go further. You are free at, at any point to, to step out uh, and to pursue another avenue of resolution. So I think people need to understand that the confidentiality is critical, but also the control that they would have with their lawyer to uh, influence the process and to decide whether or not a resolution makes sense. Now, Bill, you've been a lawyer for over 40 years. Has mediation always existed or has it developed later during your career? Well, the answer to that is is a little bit of both. Uh, There's always been a process whereby people could get together and discuss issues and resolve them outside the courtroom. But as you mentioned in the, the, the your introductory comments, in the last 20 to 25 years, it's mm-hmm. become something of a specialty. And uh, there are people who now dedicate their lives to learning about uh, mediation, to practicing mediation. And I, I think given that, it has evolved into a, a much more professional way to resolve disputes, much more skilled way to resolve disputes. And it gives uh, litigants, clients, many more options than they had before. There are special training programs now. There are special accreditation programs. There are professional organizations that uh, provide additional accreditation and training to mediators. So it's much more, uh, I'll use the word with air quotes, uh, professional than it was before, which was really kind of haphazard and catches catch can. Right. I can remember back in the day, you'd send a letter, you'd send what we call a settlement demand, and it would be delivered by the U.S. Post Office, and the other lawyer would get that letter at some point, and he'd send you back a letter with a counteroffer. Then you'd send back a counteroffer. He'd send back a It could take weeks, months, maybe years to settle a case. Well, and I think you're right, Randy, and I think that the, the process now uh, involving a third party allows you to be a little bit more candid in your position. Uh, lawyers, as you know, are reluctant to say, well, this is my strength and this is my weakness or, you, you know, know. We uh, never admit our weaknesses to the other side directly. But, of, but oftentimes, right. uh, knowing it's confidential and mm-hmm. hopefully having 
some trust in the mediator, uh, <laughs> you're a little more candid mm -hmm. and a little more transparent. And that allows the mediator then to kind of compare the strengths and weaknesses and guide the discussion in a way that neither side is giving up anything. They're not giving up their position, uh, either legally or otherwise. But hopefully, uh, through that process, uh, allows you to get to a resolution that makes sense for the client. I, Randy, I know you've heard me say this before, but uh, one thing I always ask clients in a mediation is, uh, you know, have you ever remodeled your kitchen? <laughs> and, and, and they all laugh just, just like you did. But uh, it's a point that I make to try to point out to them uh, the difficulties with litigation and the difference between mediation and litigation. And I say to them, you know, there's four things that are true about remodeling your kitchen. <laughs> it, it, number one, it takes longer than you think. <laughs> number two, it costs more than you think. <laughs> number three, it's harder than you think. <laughs> and number four, it always doesn't always turn out the way you want it to. Well, that's right. And so once you recognize that that's the difference between mediation and litigation, I think it puts people a little bit at ease. I think it helps them understand the process and the fact that, that they do have control of it and they can direct it. And it points out also some of the pitfalls of, of going forward with litigation. Um, it, it is all of those things. It is time consuming. Mm -hmm. It is expensive. It is not, there's no certainty to it. And it's very hard. And when I say hard, I mean emotionally hard. And I don't think clients really understand how difficult it can be emotionally to put your life uh, in a deposition where you're testifying under oath about perhaps very sensitive, very personal issues that um, for, for the best of us are hard to talk about in that situation. So I, I try to use that to hopefully break the ice a little bit uh, and to get people to relax a little bit and to have a little confidence in the process as well. Well, Bill, this podcast series involves some discussion about the dignity of work and how important working is for people. I assume serving as a mediator is something that fulfills you and gives you a level of pride. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the dignity or good feeling you get out of helping people solve their problems? Well, Randy, that's a great question uh, and, and absolutely true. I, I think a good mediator uh, is empathetic. I, I think a good mediator is transparent. I think a good mediator, as you said before, listens mm -hmm. carefully and, and not just listens to the words, but, but watches and, and understands what the, the, the client is saying or the lawyer is saying. Um, I don't know, maybe it goes back to my old school teacher days. You know, I don't know, <laughs> but but I think it is a a feeling that you've helped someone uh, in a difficult situation resolve it in a way that allowed them to keep uh, their privacy, that allowed them to keep confidentiality, that allowed them, perhaps as you said, to keep their dignity. They've they've mm -hmm. not been raked over the coals by an aggressive lawyer. Well, tell me about the time you lied to your employer or or this failure that you did, or we've got this performance improvement plan that you clearly didn't do the job you were hired to do. That That's hard for people, whether true or not, to be accused of those things. So I think being in this process gives people some 
a cocoon, if you will, that provides a little bit of comfort for them and, and a little bit of control, as we've talked about earlier. And, and I enjoy it. Uh, I've been doing it almost exclusively now for 12 years and have done it for the majority of my career in one form or another. Uh, so it, it does give you a sense of accomplishment mm-hmm. uh, when you help someone solve a problem. And, and I think that's one of the motivations that, that uh, at, after all these years, yeah, which, you, which keeps me engaged. You've got to feel good about it when you can walk out of your office that night and say, hey, I just solved a problem that might have taken these folks to uh, years to, to solve. Years and hundreds of thousands of dollars and aggravation that they don't need in their mm-hmm. life. It, it, and allowing people to get on with their life and look forward rather than look backward is a it's a it, it is a sense of accomplishment and quite frankly it, it does make me feel good right so what kind of disputes have you been asked to mediate over your career i'm i'm sure it's a laundry list but can you give our listeners some of the kind of disputes disagreements that you've been asked to come in and help them resolve it, it ranges from uh, individual cases randy where someone has been uh, wrongly terminated, someone's been discriminated against, uh, all the way up to and including consumer class actions involving uh, products that you would know uh, <laughs> that you use every day in uh, in, in uh, cleaning your clothes, for instance, uh, and everywhere in between. Uh, I, I do a lot of wrongful termination cases. I do a lot of cases involving corporate disagreements, mostly contract disputes. Uh, I do personal injury cases. I've done wrongful death cases. Uh, about a year ago, I did a, a very sad case involving a 13-year-old suicide uh, mm. case. A young girl wow. had been had been bullied. Um, and the, the purpose of the mediation, uh, quite frankly, was in large part to bring changes about at the school, to bring about counseling services and changes mm-hmm. in the way in which the school dealt with those issues. And that's one where, you know, you're not going to change the result or bring back the young girl, but mm-hmm. uh, you can make a change to the system that hopefully prevents it from happening again. And uh, that's something that uh, mediation can give you that litigation can't sometimes. Right. In an agreed resolution, uh, there are things that you could never get in court. And that's an example of one where the school district made significant changes in the way in which they handled these complaints from parents and students, the services that were available, the follow-up care, counseling, and so forth, that had it gone to court, uh, that would have never been discussed and that change would have never been made. So the cases really range all the way from an individual case up to Classes involving tens of thousands of people and everywhere in between. Probably any dispute we can, our listeners can imagine, could be mediated. Yeah, there are people that specialize, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, in domestic relations cases. Okay. Um, I, I don't do those cases. There are people out there that are expert at that, mm-hmm. and, and they are the ones who will do that. But uh, it can be something as personal as a uh, marital relationship. Uh, and, and I think you're right. I think looking at it broadly is probably the best way to look at mediation, that a dispute 
between neighbors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've I've done cases involving uh, the fence <laughs> right. that uh, <laughs> that divided two people's houses. Oh, gone it! You're over my property line by three inches. Or it looks horrible. Or <laughs> uh, you know your dog your dog barks too much. Or <laughs> things that you know you and I kind of look at and think, well, to them it's very important. Uh, yeah, and, and and it matters to them, and and to to not take years. And you know, time and dollars to resolve that, but to resolve it in a way that hopefully preserves the relationship, or at least doesn't damage it any further, right? Is is a is a good resolution. I can remember when judges, you know, before we really got into mediation, judges used to often say, "Hey, a good settlement is when both parties are equally unhappy." <laughs> I view mediation as somewhat win-win. You know, hopefully, people walk out of there. And both parties feel like they've gotten something, but the dispute is over, which is a victory in and of itself. The goal is to have people come away feeling that uh, that it's been a good resolution, uh, even if they have to give something up. Uh, that, that's It is the nature of mediation, as you know, Randy, that you compromise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I usually will start early in the process by saying, you know— <laughs> You're not going to get everything you want. And and if you have that mindset coming in, we need to talk about that. But a win might be, you know, somebody listened to me. Um, uh, you know from your experience, Randy, and you're, you're so very good at this, that sometimes people simply want to tell their story. Mm-hmm. And they want somebody to, to listen and take it seriously and to understand what happened. And, and for many people, the mediation is their day in court. Uh, I'm not the judge, as you pointed out. I can't order anybody to do anything. But uh, I, I can influence the way in which people interact. And, and so maybe that's the win that they needed. Right. That, that somebody took them seriously, that validated their feelings. Um, and, and maybe... At the end, even if they don't get, you know, a hundred percent of what they wanted, they got something more important. And I tell people, and, and I know you've heard me say this, uh, the courthouse is the absolute wrong place to try to get revenge or an apology or uh, any type of satisfaction that the other side uh, is going to give you. That that's just not what courthouses are set up to do or trials are set up to do. Yeah, you might win, mm-hmm. um, but you're not going to feel better about it. So if, if that's one of the resolutions that comes out of a, of a good mediation, I think you're right. I think people will feel that is important and that has uh, given them some um, credibility, if you will, uh, in the workplace or with their boss or simply being heard. Right. I, I know I've been through trials where people win. I've never heard them say, I enjoyed that process. <laughs> now, I have been in many mediations where they've walked out and they've gotten a resolution and they go, I did enjoy that process because they were listened to. But Bill, we've alluded to it a little bit, but do mediations occur only when people are already in a lawsuit or litigation setting or can happen 
at another time. Yeah, we did allude to that, Randy, and that and, and that's a good question. I am seeing more and more uh, mediation requests uh, long before any lawsuit has been filed. Uh, again, uh, early in the process gives people a chance to air their positions. Uh, it can save time and can save money. It's not public yet. Uh, so all of those are reasons to do it early. Uh, that is a trend over the last, I would say, probably the last five years. And it's mm -hmm. picked up momentum, particularly in the last seven or eight months. Because as you know, uh, the courthouses are not open for the most right, part. For the most part. Uh, you know, they'll do some criminal matters. But in, in civil cases involving individuals or businesses, um, it's going to be a while before the courthouses are back to normal. So if it's a dispute that has some uh, timeliness to it, some importance to it, uh, getting into an early mediation makes sense. And particularly in the COVID world, uh, I think it makes more sense. So I'm, I'm seeing more and more of that here in the last uh, nine or 10 months. So how does mediation even start? How, does, how do you get involved how do you get selected? Uh, what's the magic time for mediation? Walk us through that. The selection process is absolutely up to the lawyers and the client. Uh, I will normally get a call from one lawyer on one side of the case who will say, we have this issue. Uh, here are the parties. Uh, so uh, ethically, I need to check to make sure I don't have a relationship with one or other of the parties. Uh, once that's cleared, I'll call back, and then the lawyers will decide who the best mediator is uh, for that particular case. They'll talk to their client about it, talk about the strengths and weaknesses of the mediator, talk about the philosophy of the mediator, because, as you know, different mediators have different approaches to the process and different skills, and then they must agree on the mediator. Once that's done, uh, I ask them to sign a mediation agreement. It's a written document that uh, verifies the process, talks about confidentiality, talks about the timing of the mediation, talks about what documents uh, I'll need to see before we mediate. Um, as you know, I try to spend uh, as much time as is necessary reading the party's positions talking to the lawyers, sometimes talking to the clients, even before we get into mediation. Uh, that mediation uh, usually will work out from the first time I get a call to the day we have the mediation, somewhere in the 30-day range. So it's a relatively quick process once uh, I've been selected. And uh, the mediation itself can last you know, anywhere from a few hours to multiple days. And uh, sometimes we meet more than once, and sometimes we don't agree to settle the case or resolve it on the first day. And I will continue to reach out to the lawyers, you know, a week or two or three later. And uh, I've settled cases as much as five or six months after the initial discussion because people continue to litigate. They continue to spend time and money. And uh, oftentimes I'll be called back to try to help them uh months later, resolve the case. So it's a process that can continue for, for some time, or it can be over literally in a matter of hours, depending on the nature of the parties 
and the nature of the claims. Now, earlier you talked about trust. And I know lawyers that select you obviously trust you as a mediator. But the clients that come in, the individuals that come in, you know, some of our clients in workplace situations, they've never been in a mediation session. How do you build trust in them and in a relatively short period of time, if you have a mediation that lasts a half a day or a day, how do you try to establish that trust in the individual that you've never met before? Well, I hope that uh, that, that the lawyer who has retained me, who's hired me, uh, has said to the client, uh, sounds a little self-aggrandizing and I don't mean it to be, <laughs> but, but I hope the lawyer has said, you know, this guy's pretty experienced and he knows what he's doing. So if the the lawyer can help by giving me a little credibility before I even get into the room. But in terms of building uh, a relationship or trust with the client, um, it it can be as simple, Randy, as saying to the client, um, how would you like to be uh, referred to today? Uh, Would you like to be referred to as Mrs. or Dr. or Mary, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, just recognizing that that's their choice. And by starting the process that way, hopefully send a signal that that I'm here to help you. I'm here to serve you. Mm -hmm. This isn't my day. This is your day. And then I think you talk a little bit about the background. Um, I've already read the materials. Um, I want the client to know that I've taken the time to read everything. I want the client to know I've taken time to go through it with the lawyer. And I will normally have two or three questions prepared mm-hmm. uh, that have a dual purpose. Okay. One is to let the client know I've read everything. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, you know, on October 12th, you had this meeting with your boss and this was the topic. Right. Tell me about that meeting. Well, that sends a message that I've already read that. I know that's what happened. I know that was the key day. Mm-hmm. And then the second part of that, it gives them a chance then to articulate to me something that is personal. You know, I read the notes from that meeting, but tell me what happened. Tell me how you felt. Mm-hmm. And if you give them a chance to do that, again, I think you're giving them uh, credence. You're giving them the stage and you're recognizing that they are important in the process. Doesn't always go that smoothly, mm-hmm. but I think if you combine combine those approaches over time, I think people understand that you're there to try and help them. Um, that first meeting is, as you know, can be anywhere from 30 minutes to two hours. Um, and, and then I go talk to the other side and then when I come back, hopefully I've learned something that I can give to the client and I give them that fact or they, I give them something that recognizes what they've said has been heard by the other side. And so hopefully that cumulative type of interaction uh, shows them that we're there to help them uh, and I can use that then to build over the course of the mediation. Okay, so you mentioned the fact you're going to listen to them. And then you're going to go to the other side and listen to them. 
And maybe we've sort of touched on this or we've assumed everybody knows, but where do mediations occur? How do you go to the other side? Are you driving to another law office or let's just get to the basics? The answer is is we're almost always in the same building. Okay. We are always in separate rooms. Um, That's one of the changes that I've seen recently. Uh, In the olden days, you used to have everybody in one room. And uh, I, I don't think that's particularly productive. Uh, so I have the lawyer and her client in one room, and I have the other lawyer and his client in the other room, and I go back and forth between them. Uh, occasionally, I will have the lawyers meet with me separately. Uh, rarely will I have the clients meet. That's more in a business context where they're business people mm-hmm. that have had a previous relationship. But uh, I try to keep people separated because emotions run high. Um, in the old days, Randy, there used to be a common practice to have an opening meeting where the lawyers from both sides would come in and in front of their client, they would tell their story. <laughs> and and I, I just think that just made people uncomfortable, made the clients angry, made them defensive. Uh, Right, started the process off kind of confrontational. It starts out exactly the opposite of trying to be uh, cooperative and reach a resolution. So I've pretty much abandoned that from it. But the mediation can be held uh, in my office. We're we're set up to do that. Um, We've had them in your offices, as you know, or, Mm -hmm. or the other side's offices, wherever people are most comfortable. I like to do it in my office because... Um, A, I've got the files there and ready access, and B, it's neutral. Mm-hmm. So people aren't, well, we're on their turf right. or their their territory or this is in their building or whatever it is. Uh, so I, I think that's that's probably the better way to do it. How about with coronavirus? Have you made any adjustments? Are they always in person? Do you Are there Zoom mediations that go on? Explain that a little bit in the midst of this coronavirus as we're recording this and October of 2020. Absolutely, there are Zoom mediations. Uh, There are people who still want to do them face-to-face. And if we're in a space like this, which is a large open space, uh, we have two rooms that are 20 by 20. We can do it, quote, in person. Mm -hmm. Still, uh, obviously, observing masks and social distancing and so forth. Uh, but the Zoom mediations now have become much more prevalent. Um, I have three mediations in the next two weeks, uh, all of which will be done remotely. Um, I'll have uh, people check into a Zoom. Uh, they'll log in. I will then assign them to their separate rooms. And then uh, I'll go back and forth um, using the technology Hmm. Uh, talking to them. And the the advantage there, of course, is I can see them. They can see me. The disadvantage, of course, is I'm not in the same room. Right. So you lose a little bit of the body language. You lose a little bit of the um, face-to-face jawboning that a mediator could do. But uh, I think we've heard this phrase a lot during the COVID period. It's better than nothing. And, uh, (laughs) and, and, And while... The numbers are down a little bit in terms of my success rate. It's not been as much as I would have thought. Normally, um, I'll settle well over 70% uh, 
I was going to guess it's higher than that. Of the cases. Well, mm -hmm. when I say 70, it's the, usually the first time. <laughs> uh, if we add on uh, the total, it's probably closer to 80. Mm -hmm. The Zoom numbers are a little bit lower than that, but not by much, maybe 5%. And I think it depends on the cases. I mean, obviously, the harder the case, sometimes the longer it takes, and sometimes it doesn't settle until right before trial. But uh, the, the Zoom mediations are, are effective, and uh, I'll anticipate your next question. I think they're here to stay in mm -hmm. one form or another. I think we're going to see that because if I've got a client in Indianapolis and a client in Pittsburgh, uh, it saves them time and money, and people don't want to travel. Mm -hmm. uh, if I've got a client of yours who's retired to Florida, uh, rather than making them come back to Cincinnati for a day or two, if they choose, we could do it remotely and save some time. So I think there are advantages to it in terms of time and energy. Uh, I think there are some disadvantages in terms of you do lose a little bit by not being face-to-face. Uh, -face. Uh, and then, of course, there are combinations of that. Uh, sometimes the lawyers will come and, and want to be there face-to-face, -face, but the clients will appear appear by Zoom. Mm -hmm. And that's, a, I think, a really good hybrid that works uh, for any number of reasons because then the lawyers can get together uh, during a break and we can kind of keep the process rolling. So uh, we've seen that uh, as well. So you talk about listening to the clients and giving them an opportunity to talk to you, and you've mentioned the confidentiality, but should clients be worried that someday, let's say the mediation's unsuccessful, can't you be called into the courtroom and say, well, Mr. Hawkins, didn't XYZ Company admit to you during the mediation in October of 2018 that they really did discriminate against this client? The answer is no, they cannot do that. Um, I mentioned the mediation agreement earlier. Mm -hmm. The mediation agreement makes that clear that the parties, as a condition, agree to that. Everybody signs that before you start the process. Everybody signs off on it. Uh, and, and secondly, in Ohio, there is a series of statutes which uh, set out the mediation process. They protect the mediation and the confidentiality in it. They protect the mediator from being called as a witness. Um, that's that's in the statute in, in Ohio. Uh, I've never had a judge uh, uh, even ask me a question mm -hmm. about, well, didn't they admit this? Or, <laughs> right. or wink, wink, nod, nod, didn't somebody say that? Uh, the judges recognize my role. They recognize the, the statute and the protections that are built in the statute. And then also, Randy, as you know, in the, in the rules of civil procedure, which guide the cases that you mostly handle and that I almost exclusively handle, there is a specific rule that says any discussion relating to settlement cannot be used for any other purpose in any other proceeding. So really three layers of protection mm -hmm. that protect the confidentiality of, of the mediation process. So a client who comes into a mediation is in a conference room with you can say virtually anything without fear of that being disclosed in a courtroom someday or really publicly. Uh, Unlike a deposition, you know, a deposition, you're under oath. That deposition gets filed in a courthouse someplace and anybody can find it if they really go to the trouble of trying to find it. But if they try to find out what happened in that mediation, 
Nah, baby, nah. Uh, with the qualifier that uh, virtually, uh, <laughs> I, I agree with what you just said. And I think that is an advantage. Um, you know, I mean, uh, there are famous cases, as you know, where depositions have been leaked. And uh, some have been used even in this political season, mm -hmm. uh, as you know. And uh, that, that is not going to happen in a mediation. That, that is one of the advantages. That information stays with the mediator or stays in that room with that client and with uh, her lawyer. What happens to all your documents? You're taking notes. You're getting these letters from lawyers. You're getting depositions, maybe. You've concluded the matter. You've resolved it. You've got a settlement agreement signed by everybody. What happens to your file? Uh, depends on what the what the lawyers want me to do with it. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, option one is uh, I send it back. A mm -hmm. Any document that's deemed to be critical or confidential, uh, I will pack them up and send them back. Uh, option two is um, they're destroyed, mm -hmm. uh, shredded. Uh, in our case, uh, and a note's put in the file that, that that was done with the advice, direction, consent of the of the clients. Um, normally, I will keep my notes uh, only in the case if there's a question later about something that uh, was agreed to or not right not agreed to. <laughs> uh, I want to have my notes there just in case, but that's the exception uh, to to the rule. Now, you mentioned your success rate, and I think you're being humble here by saying maybe it's 80%. But so what are the keys to a successful mediation in your view? What makes one case uh, settle in mediation and another case not settle? And I know that's not an easy question. We can't generalize too much, but Give us your thoughts on that. No, I, I will, and I, I think it. it uh, look at it as a uh, as a two pronged answer, if you will. Number one, uh, a good lawyer, and and, and by a good lawyer, uh, I don't I don't mean you know somebody who's mean or mean spirited or uh, or easy or a pushover. I, you can be successful with with the nicest guy in the room and the biggest jerk in the room. But a good lawyer is a lawyer that understands her case, who understands the facts of the case, who understands the history of the case and the law, that understands strengths and weaknesses, and who can communicate that to her client. That's the key from a lawyer's point of view. And someone, candidly, who understands uh, and invests in the mediation process, who's there for all the right reasons. Uh, there are lawyers in this town that uh, after an hour or two, I will jokingly say to them, do you understand the concept of mediation? <laughs> <laughs> because I'm not sure they, they, they do or maybe they need to be reminded. On the client side, uh, it is a client who is confident enough, smart enough to listen to her lawyer to understand the strengths and weaknesses, to understand the risk of going forward, the risk and the cost of going forward, and is willing to resolve it for something less than 100% of the pie. And, and 
you get those two things together and you've got a 90 plus percent chance of mm -hmm. getting the case resolved. If you get situations where the client says, by God, I want to teach them a lesson or I want this to be a, a, a principle that is established for all time, for all purposes, that's not really what mediation is, is for. And chances are that'll be less successful. Or you get a lawyer who doesn't have confidence or doesn't have the client's ear. And that'll happen a lot of times. You'll see, oftentimes I'll see disagreements between the lawyer and the client. The lawyer mm -hmm. wants to settle, the client doesn't, or vice versa. And, and each for their own reason. And if we're not having that communication and that level of trust between the client and the lawyer, that's a challenge that will reduce the, the likelihood of success. Okay, so I promised to talk a little bit about arbitration. We spent the most time on mediation because I think mediation is more nuanced maybe than arbitration. But let's talk about uh, arbitration and what exactly is arbitration and how is it different from mediation? We talked about mediation being a voluntary process in which a third-party neutral helps the parties, facilitates a resolution and a discussion. That's the essence of mediation. Mm -hmm. Arbitration uh, can either be voluntary or court-ordered or more likely, as you've seen, Randy, in your practice, part of an employment contract, an employment agreement where when I sign on as an employee for a company, I agree that any dispute related to the terms or conditions of my employment will be arbitrated and not filed in a court. Documents I don't like. And, you know that. And I don't like people being compelled to arbitration. But, okay, tell us what arbitration is. Arbitration is, is a third-party process. It is non-judicial. There is no judge. But there is a private third-party arbitrator, someone who is hired to decide the case. And as you know, in arbitration, it is almost always a final, non-appealable order. Mm -hmm. So you're hiring someone like me, mm -hmm. who is not a judge, to listen to the case. At least not in a robe. <laughs> You're sort of a judge, but you're just not wearing a black robe. <laughs> well, I am a judge in this sense because you're 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 asking me to decide the case and issue an order, and that order is by agreement binding on the parties. So it is a mini trial mm -hmm. involving a uh, non-judge judge <laughs> to to issue that opinion. Um, there is no appeal, as I mentioned. It is final. And uh, the advantage of it, candidly, is it tends to go a little more quickly and be a little less expensive than a full-blown trial. The disadvantage is you're giving your case to uh, someone who's independent uh, to decide, and that decision controls for all time, for all purposes. So uh, that is a risk to employees or quite frankly, to people in business, uh, and they should look carefully at that and, and, and consider whether that is to their advantage or not. Sometimes it can be, but I understand your concern, particularly for most of the clients to, mm -hmm. that you represent. We like the idea of a jury of their peers, 
and oftentimes an arbitrator is not one of their peers. Uh, but the primary difference between the two, when you're an arbitrator and a mediator, when you're an arbitrator, you are deciding the case, right? I am the I am the sole judge. Yes, and in the mediation context, you're not deciding anything really. The decision is always the client's mm-hmm. in the mediation context. Yeah. So it's a it's a significant difference. People sometimes use them interchangeably or incorrectly. So I think that's a good distinction that you're drawing, and hopefully it's helpful. All right. Well, Bill Hawkins, this has been a lot of fun today. I think it's one of our best episodes to date. You and I could probably talk for hours about this subject, mediation, arbitration, various strategies. Uh, But this has been very helpful to our listeners. I hope they enjoyed it. And I want to thank you for volunteering your time today. This is a public service you're doing. You're a good person. And that's why I've always enjoyed hanging out with you and talking to you and having you help us solve our cases. It's always, so, good, always good to be with you, Randy. Thanks. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this episode of Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking, the podcast about everything related to your work, your rights and responsibilities in the workplace, whether you're a minimum wage worker, a blue or white collar employee, or an executive. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and we'll tune in next time when we explore more about working. I want to conclude this episode from Studs Turkle that I find valuable. Quote, work is about a search for daily meaning as well as daily bread, for recognition as well as cash, for astonishment rather than apathy. In short, for a sort of life rather than a Monday through Friday sort of dying, unquote. Let's hope that we can all find daily meaning as well as daily bread and recognition as well as monetary benefits. See you next time on Freaking Out About Work and please spread the word if you have enjoyed this podcast. Tell your friends how easy it is to go to freakingoutabout.com. And freaking out about is all one word. Thank you, everyone.